What do you call that noise? It's exactly 40 years since XTC played their last gig. It was 18th of March 1982 at La Palace in Paris when Andy Partridge left the stage for the last time, overwhelmed by the pressures of relentless touring and Valium withdrawal. Until that point, XTC were one of the hardest working live bands on the circuit, and in this episode of What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, we're going to be remembering what it was like to see them and what it was like to be a music journalist writing about them. My name is Mark Fisher, and in a moment I'll introduce my guests. But first, if you listened to last month's episode in which Dave Gregory and Hugh Padgham discussed English settlement, you will have heard this song. That was Ed Stainsby and Climbing Frame, a song that was inspired by this very podcast. If you are a songwriter, perhaps you too would like to do the same thing and write a song with a connection to something we have discussed on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast. A couple of you have already done that very same thing. And first off the block is David White, who has written a song called Still Got It. And here he is to explain what it's all about. Hi Mark and everyone, David White here, aka Boy48. I hope you like my song, Still Got It, which I wrote and recorded following the episode of What Do You Call That Noise podcast that was marking the 400th anniversary of the release of XTC's wonderful album, English Settlement. I know you're looking for songs inspired by themes of the tracks on the album, and this is in response to the Andy Partridge song, No Thugs In Our House. As Nigel Fielding mentions in his overview of the track in the episode, the main character in the song is a young Asian-beating National Front thug, something that goes unnoticed or ignored or denied by his parents. I remember this was a few years into Margaret Thatcher's political reign, and the UK urban youth was somewhat damagingly polarised While the National Front was calling for immigrants to be repatriated or intimidated, many of us were mobilised in the opposite direction to fight back through music and community and social conscience. It was a time of political awakening and activism. The Anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism wars, you might say, Red Wedge and CND and so on. So the badge and attitude might have said, I don't care, but uh, clearly we did a lot and bouncing up and down to the specials, UB40 and the beat was a sign of which side we were on. So where are the battle-scarred veterans of those wars now? I quite like the idea of that spirit living on in middle-aged, middle-class suburban micro-gestures, such as leaving your hedge uncut to annoy the neighbours, and wearing our old badges or t-shirts. So this is what's at the centre of the song, really. Um, Little Graham had his leaflets and his tattoo. Uh, We had our paraphernalia. And maybe at the back of the drawer somewhere, uh, we've still got it. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. So here is Still Got It, which you can hear in full at soundcloud.com forward slash boy hyphen 48. What do you call that noise?
Thanks so much for that, David. Uh, David records under the name of Boy48, and you can hear his stuff at soundcloud.com forward slash boy hyphen 48. Please send any more podcast inspired songs to me at mark at xdclimelight.com. As ever, many thanks to the Pink Things, Humble Daisies, and Nights in Shining Karma, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you'd like to join them, of course you'd like to join them. All you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. I'll be giving a shout out to the Knights in Shining Karma at the end of this episode. And if you haven't done so already, you should pop over to xdclimelight.com where you'll be able to buy a copy of What Do You Call That Noise? An XDC Discovery Book. We had a couple of technical problems when recording this episode, so apologies for any glitches, including the brief but no less fascinating contribution from Mick Middles. What do you call that noise? So to our guests, and let's start by going to New Jersey and giving a big hello to Brenna Ehrlich. Hello, Brenna. Hey, Mark. I'm happy to be here. We're very happy to have you on. Welcome to the podcast. Brenna is senior news editor at Rolling Stone magazine, as well as being a freelance journalist, short story writer, and a young adult author. Her book, Killing Time, about a girl investigating the murder of her teacher, is out this month. Uh, is the title Killing Time an Echo and the Bunnymen reference, Brenna? Um, it's not, but it does play in my head every single time I hear news about my book. Yes, I can imagine that it does. Yes, yes. <laughs> Then we go to Manchester, and we're going to be hearing a lot about Manchester in this episode, where we find David Nolan. Hello, David. Hello. David is a television producer and author of simply loads of books on popular culture. He's turned his attention to everyone from Damon Arbon to Emily Sunday, from George Michael to the Sex Pistols. And I don't know, there's going to be an, a running Echo and the Bunnymen theme because he's also made a documentary about Echo and the Bunnymen. And still in Manchester... It's a big hello to Mick Middles. Hello, Mick. Hi. Hiya. Hiya. Thanks for joining us. In the 90s, 70s and 80s, Mick was a regular music correspondent for Sounds, one of the major weekly music newspapers covering the um, Manchester scene back then in the 1970s. Like David, he has written loads of books, including biographies of New Order, The Fall, Arcade Fire, The Stone Roses and Elbow. And yes, he also wrote a book about Ian McCulloch. So this is accidentally morphing into an Echo and the Bunnymen podcast. <laughs> I think we'll start with you, Brenna, because you weren't even born when XDC were playing live, if you go back to 1982. So I just wonder, from your perspective as a modern day 
Rolling Stone uh, news editor, what sort of impression of that of that time that you have? Does it seem like ancient history, or does it seem like a live and important thing to you today? Um, I, I mean, of course, it's alive and important. It's it's funny because that was I was born in '84, so you're you're correct. I was not alive, unfortunately. I wish I had been. Yeah, it just seems like it was such an exciting and inventive time where genres were just kind of blurring and mixing and artists were coming out with starting off as trying to be kind of a punk band and then completely becoming this band that couldn't even perform what they were making live if they tried. And that's what's so interesting to me about XTC is that once they stopped performing live, they were able to become in a certain respect, like the ultimate version of themselves because there was just so much that you can't replicate in a live performance in, in what they ended up making. But I do, you know, obviously the old story is if they had continued playing live, they probably would have been better known. Definitely would have been better known since that's how people were able to see artists at that time. There's not like the internet and MTV and, and all that. So yeah, it's just, would have been a cool time. Envy you guys for, for getting to see them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Cause actually that was sort of, it was, it was David's suggestion that we should do this podcast. And that very thought was, was in your mind, wasn't it, David? Because people who are any younger than us often look enviously at those of us who did see XDC live and just, it's just an odd coincidence that David and I must have been in the same room backstage at the same theatre at the Manchester Apollo, which was my first XTC gig, and breathing the same air. So here we are talking to each other for the first time about it. Uh, but we did have that privilege. And what is it that that you think is special about those memories that we have that people of Brenner's generation will have missed out on david i mean you don't want to come across as as some old soldier you know going on yeah we fought the punk wars so for the likes of you brenner you know so i mean that's the last thing you want to do but i did notice listening to the podcast that there was a there was a, a phrase that would come up over and over again when you listen to the podcast which i love to do which was well uh i mean unfortunately i never saw xtc live but and um, which is why I kind of suggested it, because at first I thought, well, how is that possible? How can someone not have heard XTC live? And then I think, no, it's because you're old, David. And and also because um, I was a, a teenager in the late 70s, which is the absolutely perfect time to be a teenager, in my opinion. Uh, and also because I was in Manchester and XTC loved Manchester. And and Manchester seen, definitely loved XTC, and they were forever seen to be playing. They must have played in virtually every venue that there was, and um, and so yeah, we were. I, I was geographically lucky as well as um, you know lucky in in time. Uh, and I also got to think, well, does that mean? I listen to them in a different way than somebody who didn't see them live listens to them. I see these lists of, uh, you know, these are my top five XTC albums. And I look at them and I'm going, what are you talking about? What, are, what, literally, what are you on? Um, because I'm, I don't recognize this list at all. And maybe that's skewed because of 
of seeing them live and seeing those songs perform live, my brain tells me that Skylarking is probably their best album, but my heart tells me White Music, Go To and Drums and Wires are way, 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 way better. But that's probably because I heard the songs being played live. Yeah, I have a similar thing, and I think there's a whole generation, well, I know there's a whole generation of fans, particularly in America, that picked up on XTC at the time of Skylarking. It had an American producer, and it was it was very popular in America. And so my perspective is is very similar to David's in that respect, in that, that the experience I'd had, I mean, I like the band at all stages in its career, but I do come across people who who slightly dismissed the earlier stuff because maybe they didn't get it in the way that David and I had the privilege to get or it. Or maybe they're just wrong. Or they may be just wrong. <laughs> because, Brenna, as I understand it, you come from the opposite end of the XTC journey, and I don't know whether you... I know you're a fan of Wasp Star, for example. Have you come Have you come from, from that end of the chronology? Well, I mean, my first XTC record was their last one. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wasstar Volume Two, um, because I I shamefully was introduced to the band because they they had a song on Gilmore Girls. That's a good uh, reason. Yeah, it was early. I mean, it was the same year that record came out, and luckily I had a record store in my town that had XTC and had a very large XTC section. So um, shout out to Mystic Disc um, and Dan and Rich who. I walked in and asked if they had XTC and they were very confused, but they were able to provide me with all those records. But yeah, I mean, I, I had basically every record when I was a kid um, and the code of many cupboards and the whole discography, but I can see how their earlier stuff would be more kinetic live. Like the experience of like the kind of almost punk sound of their earlier stuff. Like, I can't even, like, that must have been a great show. That must have been, like, just Andy, like, helicoptering around, you know? Um, so what was, you You guys both saw this show in Manchester. What what year was that? What, what record? Um, well, the first gig that I saw was in 1979. And it, the Manchester Polytechnic and for for uh, people not familiar with polytechnics, that was where, like, if you weren't clever enough to go to university, you went to polytechnic, and um, and and it was the first gig I ever went to. So the first gig I ever went to was XTC. So the first band that I actually ever saw was Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club, because they were the support band, and I think I'm pretty certain they did uh, Video Killed the Radio Star as well. So that was early '79, and and punk was still very very you know popular and happening. And, uh, you know, and I had the Billy Idol haircut and the plastic trousers and all that kind of stuff. And but but I never I didn't know what live music was because you, you, unless you were in the room, you, you couldn't really watch it on YouTube or anything like that. So your only access to was to be in the room. And that's what it, I think it changed my life, to be honest with you. And it was when they played Mechanic Dancing. Because on the record, Mechanic Gansen goes wa ah ah ba 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 boom. And at nineteen seventy-nine at Manchester Polytechnic, it didn't do that. It went waka chaka waka chaka waka chaka ba 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 boom. Um and that absolutely blew my PVCs off. 
Uh, I'd never heard anything like it. And I thought, oh, right, so it's like this. It's 100 times louder and 25% faster. That'll do me. That'll me do me just fine, thank you very much. So, yeah, it was like something that I liked, I now suddenly really liked. And I've, I think I saw them four and a half times in all. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about the half maybe later. Yeah, there's an interesting um, half cropping up uh, there. And yeah, it just blew. And then that was it. I, I was then straight in there and I was seeing the skids and the tourists and the cure. And I saw uh, U2 and the Manchester Polytechnicus as well, you know, a couple of months later. That was it. I was just like, gimme, 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 you know, gimme, gimme as much of this as, uh, as I can possibly uh, afford. Um, uh, yeah, can't get enough of it. Um, yeah, it's funny. I'm finding it funny how much my story cor- corresponds with yours, David. That it was the 1980 ni- December 1980 gig at the Apollo in Manchester was my first ever gig of anything, and exactly the same way that you said about Bruce Woolley, my first band was a band called Modern Man. I don't know what happened to Modern Man, but I do have a memory that they had a song called Modern Man. It was Modern Man by Modern Man. I think you'll find that that was actually, it was illegal not to do that in 1980. I think it was. (laughs) But of course, me and my friend, Paul, who were were there, and my my dad drove us to Manchester from from the Wirral. So it had to get driven there. My dad very gamely drove us to the gig and came to see it with us as well. And uh, we'd just never seen anything like that. The volume, the... uh, the presence of a gig so so we just got very excited even by modern man whoever they were and then of course xtc came on and and you realized oh no this is the real thing which is often happens with uh with gigs where the headliner comes on and you realize oh oh no these are the these people really know what they're doing um funny looking at there's a fantastic website called optimism's flames that has a brilliant pretty much comprehensive uh, though i think mick has got some questions uh, yeah. a list of yeah. gigs i'm a bit skeptical and I think about that it's sort of accurate once dave gregory joined but before dave gregory joined things get a little bit misty but there was something like 16 gigs in manchester including one two three four five six in 1977 alone five in 1978 so manchester for those who don't know is three hours north of swindon pretty much directly north no particular reason they should have gone there that often apart from the fact that they're just relentlessly touring. London, they went to loads and loads of times. Swindon's obviously quite a lot. Birmingham, quite a lot. But it really looks like Manchester was one of the, maybe the third most common place that place that they that they played. And as David is describing that sense of all the other bands that were around at the time, it was just a very, and I think Brenda alluded to that as well, that late 70s period was, when you look back, the touring lists of, of bands who were around at any one venue, it's just it's just remarkable. <laughs> David mentions some of them, but you'd 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 get Elvis Costello one night, followed by Squeeze the next night, followed by XDC the next night, and so on and so on. The Undertones, the Jam, and all of these bands. A very, I don't know why, but a very culturally rich period of time. Is does that um, does that strike a chord with you, David? Is that your cat? <laughs> Uh, it is my cat, yes. Uh, <laughs> just to point out, I don't know whether you edit these things, but my cat is here, but Mick isn't. Um, just to point that out, if you weren't aware, yes, Mark. yes, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, it very. It, what really was, and it was that, and seeing you two, I don't like you two. I don't like. I don't. There's nothing. There's no. There's nothing about you two that I like uh, at all. Um, but but they were a band of 
of that type in that kind of area. So you go and see them. And I can remember seeing them at the Polytechnic, you two. And, um, and it was so crowded that I lifted both of my feet off the floor and I stayed exactly where I was. Uh, and that's crowded, um, probably dangerous crowded. And the support band were altered images and they all had these really, really cheap guitars because they'd obviously just started out. So, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I can remember every single smell, every everything um, about it. I can remember the beer. I can remember the burgers that they were selling. I can remember the girl who was stood in front of me. Um, I can remember a skinhead jumping on the stage and pushing Andy Partridge out of the way. I can I can remember every single thing about it. I can't remember where I parked my car, but I can remember everything about that. <laughs> uh, actually, you're reminding me that the second time that I saw them was actually only a few months later, which is strange thinking about it now, because at the time, because I was young, I don't remember it being a small amount of time. I remember it being a, quite a long amount of time between the two gigs, but it was only about five months or something. But the second time was at the university in Liverpool at Mountford Hall. And I took my younger sister along. And so I was the responsible big brother looking after her. And we were all down in the what, what is now known as the mosh pit. I don't know what it was known as then, but we were pogoing up by the front of the stage. Everyone was going up and down. <laughs> and at a certain point, I noticed that my sister didn't come up again. Uh, and I thought, oh, no, I'm responsible for my sister. And it just turned out, actually, that she'd uh, dropped a hair grip or something on, on the floor and she was just picking it up. But there was that um, <laughs> sense of responsibility. But but I'd imagine that the 1979 gig was pretty much like that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was it, it was potty. No, I, did, I, I would have recognised your sister. <laughs> um, yeah, it was potty. It was, it, but I didn't, I didn't have anything to compare it to. So I just thought, oh, all, all gigs are potty like this. And it turns out that most of them, in fact, were. Um, but it was very. I, t- I tell you what was weird about that time as well. It was, um, it was very. Um, there was still a lot. Of, there was a lot of, a lot of youth tribes around in '79, and it was very. Um, a lot of skinheads and stuff like that. And you'd go to gigs and there'd be a lot of Zeke Heiling at the front of the gig. Really, it's bizarre. I, I explain it to my kids now. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? I said people doing like Nazi salutes at gigs, but it was really, really common. Um, fighting was really, really common. Uh, massively, you know, too much fighting on the dance floor, as the, the specials said. And it was, really was like that. I mean, sometimes the gigs were like big fights, with uh, with gigs occasionally breaking out in the middle, and um, it was a quite you know I was pretty young and it was a pretty heavy thing to go to some of these places and come out come out the other side reasonably unscathed. Because I'm just trying to think politically at the time it was the nineteen the 1970s were often looked back on the decade that time forgot and certainly in Britain it was there was a lot of poverty a lot of um, anger building up a lot of sort of industrial relations a lot of tension in in industry and so on and and i think that was sort of manifested itself in in obviously in punk but and david you're you're a little bit after punk but but by 1979 the legacy of punk was still around and in terms of those shock tactics and embracing nazi iconography and whatever yeah i mean that's one way of looking at it you know the other way of looking at it is is it was an awful lot of uh, drunken racist dickheads at, at gigs. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe a simpler way of putting it. That there was a load of absolute pillocks who, with ten pints of uh, bitter inside them, who wanted to fight. And I don't think that's anything to do with the uh, political situation. I think that's to do with um, young men with beer inside them. You know, mm-hmm. um, as as mechanic dancing taught mm-hmm. us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And there was people were, I don't know, people, people who still do it now, but you would go to a gig. I would go to a gig because I was interested in music, but many would get people would go to a gig just for the, not for any interest in the band, but just because they could throw themselves around and, and fight. And fight. A massive, massive, massive amount of fighting at gigs. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it seems weird now, you know, when you send your own kids off to a gig and you kind of think, my God, you know, <laughs> the environments that I was in when I was their age, you know, and uh, I wouldn't send them into it now. It's it's ridiculous. Does this ring any alarm bells with you, Brenna? <laughs> are we are we painting a picture of a of a fearful time? No, I mean, I feel like it really hasn't changed. Um, I mean, not to go too deep into darker subjects but astro world recently you know the big festival of course yeah um and i've been to plenty of shows where you get banged around a lot um at punk shows you know i don't do this anymore (laughs) too old to stand at the front of the stage and get banged up and you know fall down but i i think it's always just been kind of an outlet for people to act inappropriately or just act, you know, give up and, and abandon your your inhibitions and get out your your feelings and your however that manifests. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I suppose maybe at that time, because of the just the energy that was around in the, in the music itself, that there was a propensity <laughs> for people to throw themselves around. Yeah. Even you know, I even, mean, even more. You hear, you do hear like more horror stories. I think from that era, um, especially with like bands like the Slits and like female artists getting a lot of, you know, things thrown at them and um, more negative experiences. I think than happen today. Um, and I could see how a band like XTC also might instigate some of the more thick members of the audience to to misbehave um given that they are you know so flamboyant and strange and and maybe not as like traditionally masculine as some of those you know men with the beer that that David were mentioning I, I don't know like what was what was the audience reaction to them um, do you know I actually remember a lot of young women in in the audience um the, I, I wrote a book, the first book I wrote, which is the, the Pistols book that um, Mark mentioned. I actually wrote about this gig in the book, and um, I'm not going to I'm not going to say what I wrote in there because some of it is slightly off color. But um, it was um, there was quite a lot of women in the audience. I think I think a lot of women liked Colin basically, and <laughs> um, particularly as as making plans for Nigel came out and stuff like that. Um, but I loved it. To be honest, I didn't. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a fighting man in the slightest. But um, it was, it was all part of the, of the carnival, really. And you get, you get fights at even the most, you know, you know, fights at altered images. There you go. Can you imagine that fight, <laughs> fighting at altered images gigs? It's bizarre, you know, when, when they're doing their kind of, you know, Tulula Gosh routines. And um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what it was like. And it was it, it was odd as well that the half that I alluded to I, I saw XTC once half because it was really common at this time to not get into gigs. Not getting into gigs was really common, and it, it sounds so stupid saying this out loud now, but you would very often turn up at a gig without a ticket. 
you would very often sometimes be refused entry because you weren't a student or you weren't old enough or this, that and the other, or you might get thrown out for various reasons. And you would go around the back and listen through the back door. It was really common. I did it loads of times. I went to see bands and couldn't get in. So I listened to it through the back door. So one time I went to the XTC and I couldn't get in. So I listened around the back at Manchester University. And I, didn't th- I, know I went home perfectly happy with that because it was quite a common thing to yeah. not see a band yet kind of see the band, if you know what I mean. Yes, I was imagining the half was like half a gig, but in fact it was, it was not... Um... It was it was horizontal rather than vertical. It, it was sound, but with no pictures. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was recalling the other day watching a show through the window on the balcony of a, um, a venue just because it was so crowded that and hot and sweaty. I was just like, I'll just, you know, stand on the balcony and watch. So I guess that was my half show. It, it's It's my benchmark. I would say to my kids, oh, and they say, oh, I really, really like this band. And my my test for this is, are you willing to stand, sit outside on the step outside the venue, listen to them through the back door, and then sleep in the bus station, and then hitch a ride home? Are you willing to do that for this band? Because that's my that's my benchmark for for liking a band. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I can remember the second time we saw them. You know, even having seen them, it was still a very exciting thing to be going to do. And it was on a Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, when we left school. And if you didn't like sport in my school, when you got to the top year, you had the option to volunteer in the local hospital to do dog's body work. Filing forms in the general office is what I used to do. And my friend was doing a similar job. And so we managed to persuade the people who worked there that uh, that it wasn't necessary to stay for the whole of the afternoon. So we went across to... To ten miles away to Liverpool, and so we were. We must have been at the gig by five o'clock in the afternoon or something, and for a gig that was probably starting quite late. <laughs> and I remember just hanging out with people. There was other young people hanging out as well, and we just had a chat with them and so on. And that's what we were. We thought that was a reasonable thing to do. I, I, I didn't complain about it. Do you it. know why? It was because we'd heard about this thing that people like Joe Strummer would let the kids into the gig for free like through the toilet window or something like that. So you were often turning up ridiculously early on the hope that Joe Strummer or someone equivalent would let you would 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 show pity on the kids and um and let them in through the toilet window, which of course never ever happened. It's never happened. Still I'm still hoping that someone will let me in through the toilet window at a gig and I go to I still go to a lot of gigs and it's never happened. I would imagine that in some respects like buying tickets online like I'm used to pretty consistently over the course of my life has cut down on some of that, you know, camaraderie, you know, you, you don't go to a show that you don't have a ticket for because it's going to be sold out. Like, yeah, you're not getting perfect in. sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, and, and these days probably sold out six months mm-hmm. in advance as well. I'm, I'm always buying tickets for things that are like next year. <laughs> uh, I don't ever remember doing that back yeah. then. Waiting for the the second that the pre-sale starts to like click. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of tickets, here's, here's something that's not on that Optimism's Flame gig list. Um, I went to see uh, XT, so I saw XTC at the um, Polytechnic. I saw them at the Apollo. I saw them at Rotters, which was some horrible nightclub in Manchester. Completely inappropriate venue for them to be at during the Black Sea tour. 
terrible. Terry Chambers' drum kit took up the whole stage. And then I went to see them again at the Manchester Apollo on the English Settlement Tour. And I get off the train and I walk down the road to Manchester Apollo that anyone who's, who's been to Manchester will know very well. And I got and I saw all these guys dressed like me coming in the opposite direction. And I was like, where are you going? And they were like, the gig's off, gig's off. And I said, no. Oh. So I walked all the way to the Apollo, went to the um, box office. And um, the nice woman on the box office said to me, um, yeah, gig's cancelled. The lead singer's poorly. And um, yeah, the lead singer was indeed poorly. And I got my money back, my £2.75 or whatever it was, got my money back. And um, that was that. No more XTC Live, which I have to say, I kind of held against them for a very, very long time. Yeah, I, I have no memory about why that exact same scenario didn't happen to me. So I wonder whether I knew in advance that they, I don't remember having a ticket and that didn't happen, but um, but I don't know why I wouldn't. We've been rejoined by Mick. Hello again, Mick. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It was a struggle, but I got back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, very good. Glad to have you on board. Mick, we're just, um, well, David is, is vaguely challenging the accuracy of the Optimism's Flames list of gigs. There's something like 16 gigs that XDC played, according to the Optimism's Flames website, um, in Manchester alone. Do you reckon there were more well, than that? Y- yeah, I think, I think um, it's very strange because... Um, we seem to keep going to XCC gigs when we didn't even know we were going to them, you know, and XCC turned up. Um, I looked at the listings that you sent me, um, uh, some of them very odd. Um, there was one in, 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 at the Bellevue in Manchester. It says XCC played Bellevue in Manchester. Well, Bellevue is a huge uh zoo and um uh um all all sorts of old fashioned um um stuff a circus where Led Zeppelin plays and who plays um and then the class plays um but XCC didn't play in in any of those places they played in um, a place called the Zoobidoo Disco um I never forget this I never forget this and we went in and it's a plastic palm tree place uh, literally you sat behind plastic palm trees like that you couldn't see the band there's no stage there's just a dance floor and the band shuffled on were you there dave did you oh, remember Mick, of course you're very very much older than i am so uh, no i wasn't at this gig thanks for that dave yeah you're probably you're, you're probably right anyway anyway they had this great this dj called dave eager who was a radio one dj who, who, who did this like, and there's XTC, and there's like seven people in the crowd. I can name them all. Paul Morley was there with his girlfriend, and um, and, uh, and I was there, and, and and we were hidden behind palms. We were hidden behind these plastic palm trees, and actually shuffled on stage, and, and um, um, played a set, very very frantic set, and rushed off. Um, and, and and that was typical of, of those sort of gigs. They were amazing because they didn't know where they were going. Um, they didn't know who their audience was. Their audience didn't know who they were. Um, and, and it was a very strange... Another one. Can, can I go on? Yeah, I'm do. Okay to yeah, go on do. Another one was at the Roxy Club in London, the, the famous Roxy Club, uh, the punk venue um, in London. Now, 
We went down with the with the drones. It's logged actually, and that list that you sent me has been with buscocks. It wasn't buscocks. It was the drones from Manchester, and we went down with them in the van. Um, we did, no one had any idea until we got there that they were actually supporting XTC. It's typical XTC situation. And it was also the first night that the Roxy Club, you know the Roxy Club, it's a very famous club in London, big big punk club in London, you know, it's where, where, where the Banshees and the Pistols and all these people play, uh, little play. And um, um, we got there and, and um, found out that XTC were actually playing the main headline, the main headline. we didn't know that, we went with the drones, Paul Morley was managing the drones, we went in and... They played to these punks who, who didn't like them at all. I mean, that was, it was still a strange situation that people were trying to work out what they liked and what they didn't like and whether XCC could fit into that. <laughs> XCC never fitted in, into any scenario, did they? Let's face it. And, that, yeah, and that, 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 that was a problem. Anyway, they played, but they did play a set. The drums played a set, a very, very punk set. XCC played a set. And then there was a riot because it was the first night that the, the Roxicle, the famous Roxicle, had been, had been taken over by new owners. And there was a riot and, and, um, and fighting all over the place. And XC ran out. And, and um, um, this guy in front of us stood up and smashed a table on the floor in front of us. And the guy who did it was Tony Parsons, who has um, um, since become a very famous crime writer or whatever he does. Um, but that's a typical XTC moment. In the, in the, in like the, it's like they were not in the right place at the right time, and they never were. And you know, um, But I was weird. I was weird because, I must admit, um, looking through, David sent me some stuff, um, uh, reviews did for sounds at the time, and I was pretty strange, I must admit. Um, and and they, they played at Manchester Polytechnic, and I moaned like mad. Yeah, 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 there you go. I moaned like mad about, um, they shouldn't be playing here, they should be playing the, the Apollo, they should be playing this little squashy club. Um, but then I noticed, there's a later review at the Apollo saying, they were great when they played the, the poly. <laughs> Crap now, they're boring now, they're playing these big places. So you can't win. When, you can't win with people like me. Um, but XCC, I, mean, I actually think it's an important point, actually. I think XCC was searching for their audience, you know, and, and I don't think they knew. And I don't think they ever actually knew. Um, there is an audience out there that's very disparate and, and, and all over the place, you know, um, as we are, I think, I think we said that. And um, uh, it dawned on me, looking through this stuff for this, that that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to find their, the, 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 the people who would appreciate what they were doing and struggled. Even when they, even when they had hit singles, you know, it still didn't quite work. And and maybe it's good that it didn't. You know, it's one of those things, isn't it? But but it but it was you know we, we had we, we, we you know we, <laughs> we had a lot, and that's all I can say really. Um, the last one we saw, I, th I think, was at, at Manchester Apollo. They finally made it to the Apollo. They filled the Apollo, big place in Manchester. Um, and it's the worst gig that I ever saw them play, strangely enough. You know, I loved them when they were in these little places where no one quite knew what. When they got their own audience, it didn't quite, didn't quite work. So I don't, maybe that's me. I don't know. But I think it's an XCC thing. That, 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 that they were not like... They just were not like other bands that connected with certain sort of people. Because you don't know who those people were. And I still don't know who an XCC fan is. Do you? Did anybody else know, you know? 
Is that, is, that, is that a fair point? Well, it does remind me, you know, on Facebook recently, somebody was speculating that if XTC had continued to play live after 1982, then they would yeah. have built and built and built and they would have played American stadiums and stadiums all around the nah, world and all the rest nonsense. of it. But, but my memory of it, <laughs> and, and I was looking back at that review that you did, um, uh, I think it was 1979 that Mick, you did in Sounds. And, and even at that point, you were saying... Why, you know, why can't they find their audience? So my memory is that, very similar to yours, is that that it wasn't that nobody went to see these gigs, you know, and my first gig I was just saying was that, was that that gig that you think was their worst, but for me it was their best because it was, <laughs> that, because that was my entry point. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, so the, you know, the um, Manchester Apollo was a big theatre. It was, it wasn't that nobody knew who they were in that room, but generally even then it felt like, even then, that they were a best kept secret. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the fact that they were sort of out of the out of the central league in a sense, they're only you know the left left field or whatever was was always a great thing, and they always were. But that was always going to go against them in the long run because they were not going to. There's no way Virgin could find a, an audience for them, or you know, it, it was never going to happen. But but you know, they made such great records, so. We, uh, we're all here now because we 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 love that, you know. So it's um, um, a left field kind of thing. But it was it was interesting because they, they were. I think I think it was the confusion on both sides at that point. I'm only talking about seventy seven to seventy nine. After that, you know, I don't know what happened because I didn't I didn't see them after that. But during that period, there was a very a big confusion about who they were, what they were doing, why they were doing it, and why they were singing songs about these weird left field things, and and it didn't seem to fit into the UK subs or you know <laughs> or people like that or the Buscocks even and Buscocks probably the closest to XTC I would I would suggest because um, um, yeah you know. Um, but they didn't, you know, it was this struggle to fit. And I think they still to this day have this. Do, do, do yeah, you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But at the same time, Brenner asked an interesting question before about, about um, I think, w- w- with the lens of the stuff that they did in their non-touring years, their post-touring years, they they became, uh, I don't know what the right word is, I don't want to say effeminate, <laughs> they, they, went, um, they went sort of, they went bodily masculine, they went a hard rock group. But actually, back in the touring days, they were very muscular. They were very, um, they fitted in in that sense, in the yeah. sense of uh, they were a loud, noisy rock and roll band. I think, I think, I think also, I have to say, as, as time moved on, and I kind of moved away from them, I could tell that there was a, um, a dynamic within the band that was changing. It's Andy's band, initially, totally Andy's band, his songs, he sang them, and Colin started singing more and more, and obviously Virgin pushed Colin to the front, didn't they? Uh, Barry Andrews started, started writing more songs, and it was getting more complicated. I could see that. I could see that, you know, um, uh, that happening. Um, initially, Andy's band were a different band, and it, and it, it pushed it away. Um, um, I don't know. I mean, it's still, it probably made great music later on, to be honest. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really... I don't really know, um, but but I could see that bit by bit there was something going on with the with the with the dynamic of that band, and there's no doubt about it. You know that people were moving in, and Colin suddenly started singing more songs, um, um, 
I mean, let's face it, he was, he was, he was a more obvious pop star, wasn't he, you know, than the, the Andy, you know, there's no two ways about that. But, um, but that, you know, that's what, that's what made them great, you know. It was the Dukes of Stratosphere and all this sort of stuff later on. It's a great thing. But my thing, I mean, my, my thing, my little thing was, um, um, I, I sort of reviewed them and went to see them, oh, ten times in that, in that little short space of time when they didn't know what they were doing and no one knew who they were and anyone knew. And, 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 yeah. But I do think people actually started listening to them, latched on to them. You know, I do think they did kind of get through to people, you know, in, in a funny sort of way. The punks were weird, you know, but um, it, 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 it was just... A, it's, just it's an old time for that band to evolve, you know. In 1967, it would have been easier for them, or maybe 10 years later, it would have been easier for them. But at that point, it was very, very difficult for XCC to break through. But that is what made them great. Now, I... I, I before that, I have to say, I, I'm stupid because I, I looked at some of these re- old reviews. We may never know what he was saying. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I think Mick's wife just killed him. <laughs> <laughs> no. We'll look him back again. He's still looking good. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm curious because I've talked to Andy before and um, he, he kept talking about how much Rolling Stone hated XTC. And I was right. like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I was not alive. I mean, yeah, tell me a little bit about the British press, because I know it also has a reputation even today for being kind of like caustic in a certain respect. Yeah, and it was, um, I suppose, actually my encounter with my encounter with music was actually through the music press because because it was quite difficult to know what programs you should be listening to on the radio. It wasn't the same choice there is now. And there was, uh, if you you might have been aware that John Peel was playing interesting stuff, but you had to had to be up after 10 mm-hmm. o'clock to hear his shows and, and 10 o'clock at night and so on. So actually hearing stuff, I didn't find that quite very easy. It's not like now when you can just go on the internet. But my dad was a librarian and in the library where he worked, they had a record library. You could you could borrow records as well as you could borrow books. And because they were buying these records, uh, he used to get um, NME every week and New Musical Express every week and his colleague would get Sounds or Melody Maker every week one of these other publications. So he would bring it back every 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 week. So I was reading this stuff about without really knowing what I was reading about mm-hmm. and thinking, this sounds intriguing, and developing an interest. As uh, These things came out every week, and uh, these publications, they, went, they were known as inkies because, because the ink would come off on your fingers. And there was, um, I, I think this happens to all art forms, you know, writing about... Poetry is quite sympathetic and nice, but rock and roll writing is rough and tough and ref- and reflected the energy of the music. Certainly back at that point when I was reading it in the late 70s. So each one had their own characteristic. Um, maybe David could say something about how the different music publications varied from one to the other. New Musical Express was the sort of, if, if, it felt like it had been to university and it was using big words and a little bit philosophical and pretentious. Sounds and was more polytechnic. Sounds was more, sounds was more polytechnic, yeah. And rougher and punkier, maybe. And Enemy felt it was, uh, it had been a bit slow catching up on punk and catching up with punk and therefore had had to make up for lost time. It um, People like Julie Birchall came in and, 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 and got rid of all these old dinosaurs because as well as you had dinosaur bands, you had dinosaurs critics writing about them. So all of that had to be overthrown. But David, as somebody who has a career as a music writer, that was a 
it was really important, wasn't it? Um, on a Thursday when yeah. it came out and you went down to and the newsagent? I, news would, I would buy the lot. I would buy Melody Maker, Enemy, Sounds and Record Mirror every single week, week in, week out. So I was that kind of person. Uh-huh. And yeah, they, they held a, an extraordinary amount of power, probably more so than any other set of journalists, cultural journalists in the world. And um, some of it was, a great deal of it was nonsense. A great deal of it was made up. A great deal of it was people reviewing gigs that they'd never been to and talking about albums they'd never heard. Um, And having, you know, I'm a journalist who ended up writing about music rather than a music journalist. And the lack of uh, care, thought, attention to any form of detail, nuance, or indeed fact... Uh, when you go through the music writing of that time, is astonishing. If you'd have done that in any other kind of journalism, you would have been sacked. Just literally making stuff up. Literally making. Oh, we're short of we're short we're short of a movement this week, lads. Oh, let's make one up. Let let's let's <laughs> let's write. What should we do? I know. Um, ambient handbag. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, so let's let's find let's let's create a movement of ambient handbag. It was just nonsense, um, but it was thrilling and exciting, and you know, uh, to is, but looking back on it now, it was nonsense, and the writing was terrible. The the some of the attitudes were absolutely appalling, and the um, the fact that they couldn't be bothered checking anything has made people like my job, and I suspect yours as well, Brenna, very difficult because the one mm-hmm. the one thing you can't really rely on is um, anything that anyone wrote in the music press in the 1970s and the early 1980s because it's all rubbish. Well, even some of the musicians' memoirs, um, I think it's one of my favourites, it's not XCC, is um, that the Ramones were talking about how they went to Stephen King's house um, when they were going to write the Pet Cemetery song and like talking about what his house looked like. And apparently that never happened. So they just came up with this whole story about what Stephen King's <laughs> house looked like. And he was like, they never came to my house. So yeah, it's you, everything in music you kind of have to take with a, a grain of salt. Even now, musicians like to fuck around and, you know, lie sometimes just oh, they're, they're astonishing <laughs> liars so basically yeah, yeah that, that was the problem right there so you had one group of liars in the same room as another group of liars yeah. what are you gonna get twice the lies yep <laughs> you know so then you go back and try and unpick it which is what i've kind of my kind of little niche if you will or certainly was you know when i was writing that kind of stuff was this kind of okay let's see how much of this is true and mm-hmm. literally forensically take it apart, like taking a butterfly apart in a mm-hmm. biology class, and it's all almost always nonsense. And it's and it's the most one of the most satisfying things is is to to write something and then have a look a few days later, and you can see that Wikipedia has changed mm-hmm. based on what you've just written, and yep. that's extraordinarily <laughs> satisfying because you've gone you've gone and corrected it. The truth. Yeah. Yeah. The actual yeah, the yeah. truth of it. You know, it's like 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 the famous Sex mm-hmm. Pistols gig in Manchester. You know, it was um, you know, n- nobody even knew who the support band was until I found out and tracked them down. Mm-hmm. Um but the ju- music journalists are very, very happy to repeat what their mate has told them in the pub or what they found in the cuttings file, as opposed to doing it for real. 
And, um, you know, if you were doing a court case, you couldn't say um, th- there was about seven, maybe nine people in the gang. Um, yeah. They all had blonde hair or maybe black hair. I'm not quite sure. I was pretty drunk. And, uh, and the judge said some stuff that I'm now going to make up. You'd be sacked. But music journalists got away with it week in, week out. Shame on them. Yeah, I find that really interesting because like you, I'm a journalist who ended up being a music journalist. You know, I went to journalism school. I was writing about courts and crim- like crime. Um, and it's it's so interesting working in music journalism because there's just so many mistakes and I double check everything. But it, it makes it kind of more kinetic and interesting in a certain way. Like there should be mythology about music. There should be, you know. No, no, bro. No. <laughs> No, 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 brother. No, 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 no. Here's the thing. It's it's a famous quote. It's a very Manchester thing, which is, you know, uh, that's attributed to Tony Wilson of Factory Records, which is, you know, if you've got a choice between the truth and the legend, you know, print the legend. Well, here's a crazy thought. If, if, If the legend, if the truth is good enough then it will become a legend itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need you to bestow legendary status on it. Not you, Brenna, but, I mean, you, the the music journalist masses. So I, I, I don't – I think if, if the truth is good enough, it will become a legend itself. It doesn't need some half-drunk music journalist in a pub in London or Manchester or wherever making stuff up and then just – Praxising it, praxis makes perfect, as we know. Later on, and justifying it by saying, "Oh yeah, but we were just like creating the legend." Nah, no, 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 not having it. Sorry, Bradley. Well, you're, nice saying... per- you're a very nice person, but no. <laughs> I'm just saying, like you, I like to, I like to debunk things. I like, you know, unraveling mysteries in music, and there's so many mysteries in music just because of what you said, the way it's been reported with this weird mythology that's half lies. So it makes my job more fun because there's stories that you can uncover and chip away. But yeah, I would say, yeah, good journalists don't need to lie because they're good at noticing what's important. And they're good at letting their subject be the, the forefront while they retreat into the background. Totally, yeah. Brenna, do you find that with Rolling Stone that you... Um, that you suffer the consequences of the kind of sloppy journalism that exists, that people don't expect Rolling Stone to be accurate? Um, people have all kinds of feelings about Rolling Stone that are strange. Like, <laughs> recently it's, you know, stick to music, like, no politics. And we're like, have you read no- Rolling Stone at all? Like, or they'll get angry about pop stars being on the cover when... You know, we've always had pop stars on the cover. It's just change what a pop star is. Yeah, there is there is a little bit of mistrust, but I feel like there's mistrust for all mainstream media to a certain extent or all behemoth, behemoths like Rolling Stone. But it, it always kind of cracks me up when, when people criticize it for things that it has always done. I think there's a certain subsect of older music fans who've become more conservative as time goes on and they expect their publications to be conservative too which Rolling Stone's never been conservative. It's never been anything but like a liberal publication. We should have been covering XTC more, but. (laughs) So Brenna, can I, can I ask Brenna in that case, what's XTC's best album? See, this is, this is my personal, um, like you said, 
you kind of know it should be skylarking, but my favorite is Wastar 2 because I think the reason why that's my favorite is because that record is our last record and it's so good. It's just like nothing you heard before. And when I heard it, it was um, the song on Gilmore Girls was the man who murdered love. And I was like, what is this song? Like, this is not like anything I've heard before. Um, and every song on that, like church of women is like, like a stellar song. Like every song is a story in a way that that's not what was on the radio when it was 2000. It's not what was on the radio. It's not what, Nothing I'd heard before, except for maybe the Beatles, was close to that. You know, everyone's going to say Skylarking. I just like those later ones are always going to have a special place for me. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because it, I could say almost exactly the same thing, but just strip out about four of the words that you said. So <laughs> I, I, for me, it's always going to be white music because that's that's the thing that that's the record that changed my life. So. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be that, even though my intellect tells me otherwise. And I was watching a TV... This will be interesting to try and translate for a non-British audience. I was watching a TV show in 1978 called Tis Was. And Tis Was was... Oh, God, this is hard to explain. Um, it was a, a an adult's programme that happened to be shown at 10 o'clock in the morning on, on a Saturday. It was a, it was a, it was a kids' programme for adults that was on on a Saturday morning. And... Um, they they showed the uh, this is pop, and I thought, my God, you know, yeah, I mean, Buscocks and the Pistols and the Damners, that's that's fine, but no, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that's been designed and engineered specifically for me. Okay. This has been this is this is for me. This is mine. And I and I went. I think it was my dad's birthday, and I went down and I had a few pound, a few bit of money to buy him a present, and I didn't. I bought white music instead. <laughs> And um, and you're never going to beat that, you know. N- no amount of um, fancy words about you know how how good um, uh, uh, skylarking is will ever replace. I mean, that's why music writing is a sense. It's it's kind of nonsensical in a way because you try. It's almost like you're trying to convince someone. You know that feeling that you have in your head and your heart and your stomach and your feet about that piece of music. Well, it's wrong. And let me let me convince you and explain to you why that feeling you have is wrong. So it, it it's a non-starter. But yeah, so I completely get. It's always going to be that entry level, that entry level drug, which is always going to be your favorite drug. Yeah. And yeah, for for whenever it whenever it was. But 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 I've got a question about um, entry level. So effectively, you've got two entry levels, David. You've got you've got it with white music by the sound of it, the first album or one of the first albums you bought. And XTC Live, one of the first live bands that, that you saw. And as I said in my introduction, you've written about all of these other bands. You're quite, um, you're very uh, uh, greedy. You're promiscuous in greedy. your musical taste. I'm very greedy. It's not like you're focused on one band above all others, but you are still here 40 years later, still talking about XTC. Was it just coincidence that they were your entry level or was there, do you think there was actually, it was good fortune that you came across them at the right time? Um no, I don't think it's good fortune in the slightest because I'd been through. I, I love Buzzcocks and the fact that there was a really good band who seemed intelligent, um, and they were from near to where I lived was really thrilling. I love Generation X. Generation X were probably my favourite band. What age are we talking um, about at this time? How old were you at this point? Fourteen. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. 
dangerous time for a young man yeah, and yeah. possibly a young woman. I wouldn't know but because uh, I, I didn't talk to any till I was about 23, so I wouldn't know. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, when you're 14 and uh, a young man, things hit you very, very hard. And uh, yeah, so I, I so I know I knew I knew straight away that is that is the thing that has been designed for me, mm-hmm. and um, so there was no doubt about it at all. And it did. I think it changed my life. You know, I think it. I wouldn't have been. You know, I've been a. I've, it sounds like I'm about to die, but I've had a fantastic career. I've had a great career, Mark. And <laughs> and I genuinely think that had I not watched his was that morning. And see next TC, and had I not gone to that gig, I think my life would have changed, turned out very differently. I, I genuinely believe that, you know, um, that I wouldn't have been a journalist, I wouldn't have been a writer, I wouldn't have done books, I wouldn't have done any of those things. I did them because um, I was a spark went off because of those that album and that gig. Chris Tarrant changed your life. Well, no, Sally James changed my life. Sally James. <laughs> yeah. Look her up on the internet, Brenna. <laughs> Sally I'll changed try to my find life. the clip, yeah. Mm. Maybe it's on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly plenty of tizzles on there. It's pretty weird stuff. But yeah. it does. And I, my relationship with XTC is quite complicated. It goes up and down. I was very angry with them for not touring anymore. This, this excitement and a pleasure that they very clearly got from performing live to have that suddenly turned off. I was very annoyed about it. So I, I, I find it difficult to listen to Mama because that is my, that's the album that, that they released when I was still angry with them. So I find it difficult to listen to that. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it came, it, it comes back and, and now of course we've got these sort of strange situations where, you know, we kind of did have XTC sort of back the other year in a live scenario uh, with these uh, TC and I gigs in Swindon, um, which was a very mood. I was very, I was very moved. I think uh, Mark, I think that's the first time that we met and uh, over breakfast in, (laughs) in, in in the premier inn or whatever. And I was, I was still at the, I can't process that. I'm still struggling processing that stage uh, the morning afterwards and then you've got this other stuff, this XTC stuff as well, which is going on. So it's an interesting time to talk about it. But it does, part of me is like, well, maybe it was good that it stopped because that means I've got this kind of little special thing that I can hold on to and go, ooh, look at that. It's my special thing. It's my XTC gig memories. And then you kind of think, well, maybe if they had carried on, I don't I don't buy into this, they would have played stadiums thing. That's a, a no. You, you, they, nah, the stadiums aren't the place for the for the discords of uh, respectable streets. No, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. But maybe they'd have been, you know, just just slogging it around and doing it. And Colin Voldin's voice wouldn't have been as good if he'd been touring for the previous however many years. And that maybe they'd have turned into some kind of, um, I don't know, one of one of those bands that you see chugging through the hits you know here's here's an old one guys you might remember this clap along and all of that stuff it's vile on a cruise or something yeah yeah just it's all and doing the vip package for an extra 35 dollars all of that so maybe it's a good thing that they didn't turn into that and what instead we've got this it's like it's like that little gnat isn't it in uh jurassic park preserved in aspic Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and no one can mess around with it, and no one can, 
no one, you know, Andy Partridge can't let us down by being a, a dreadful live performer going through the motions. We'll never have that. And maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, or trying to do like all the music that, that Brenner got into first because because you approached it from the opposite direction to us, from us. Um, you know, trying to do versions of that live and not, you know, if it wasn't up to scratch or if it was second rate or whatever. I mean, maybe it would be brilliant. It's I can only speculate. But it seems to me that, uh, yes, I like that gnat in aspect. <laughs> I, I like that feeling of, um, of course, I'm talking from the point of privilege, having seen them live. But that seems to me to be, I'm satisfied with that. I'm satisfied that I, that with the output, because it, it seems to be a lot of it and all of a very high quality. I mean, actually these days, because of my age, I do end up going to see bands, you know, long past their heyday who still do put on a good show. It's interesting seeing, I saw Scritti Politi recently and they were very good and probably better than the Everywhere because they didn't really play very live the first time around. So it is possible to see bands who still maintain their standards and and it, and it would be very depressing if you went to see bands you remember being being fast and exciting and going to see them and realizing that they were you know just a sort of carbon copy of what they used to be like but at the same time i'm i have seen xdc or you know already and looking forward to seeing them again really i should be watching a, another group of 18 year olds should be going to see <laughs> well it all depends on what you like well that's true that is true yeah I think you should do, I, I try and do like a one for one, which is if I go and see an old band, I go and see a new band, you know, so I'll go and see uh, something or some form of something uh, that I, I liked or like, but then I'll go and see like, I will literally go and go, right, okay, bang. And I'll go and see like, I'm sick in your hat at some tiny venue. I've just made them up. There's no such mm -hmm. banners. Uh -huh. Well, there probably is going to uh -huh. be now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to form yeah, them now. Yeah, we could form it, couldn't we? Um, I'll go and see. I'm sticking your hats in some tiny pub because I think it's important that you you. That it's good for the soul that you do that. If it becomes is that is that that is that version of um, Doctor Feelgood, isn't it? That, that there's there's no members of original members of Doctor Feelgood in. So it's like you know triggers broom as we would say in this uh, in, in the uk which is like all the parts have been replaced uh -huh. but is it still the same broom and um, and i can understand people feeling slightly queasy about that um i think the tc and i things were done with with great dignity and i and was quite moving actually i was i, I found it a moving experience i remember I, I had i only went one night and there was i was sitting on the front row and a guy came i was with my me and my mate Pete Davis had come down from Manchester, was done the old Novotel thing. And um, this guy sat down next to me. I think he was possibly American. And he saw how close he was to the stage and he started crying. And so that must, that, that means something, doesn't it? That, that is mm -hmm. not just, um, that's not just, oh, you know, here's some of the old hits, guys, clap yeah. along. It's not that, it's something else. And, you know, so whether the yeah, XTC can, XEXTC can do that remains to be seen because I ain't seen it. But um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with with some with something from the past if it's done really well. Um, but it, it's good to see I'm sick in your hat from time to time yeah. as well. <laughs> I think it's good as long as there's joy. I think in these bands playing, and it's not just oh god, I have to play this song again. As long as they're, it's like palpable joy. It's yeah. I think that's all bands, all shows, as long as there's something there that's not just, you know, I got to I gotta pay the bills. 
Um, yeah, and you can see it in their eyes, can't you? Yeah. You can see it. You can see it, and you can you could smell it. It's like a musk coming off them. Mm-hmm. Of you know, there, there is there is a particular band that I've I've seen the singer complain about. Um, you know, I'm, I guess we should play. You know, this you know this, this song here. Is, you know, I won't name it. Up the junction, and um, and oh, I'll play this again, have I? And I think that's well, just you don't have to. Yeah. Fine, just play your entire new album if you want. It's entirely up to you. And there's well, someone I'm... in the audience who's never heard you play that song before. Yeah. Who's absolutely. been waiting for it. So Yeah, absolutely. Who's who's slept in a bus shelter and mm-hmm. and is listening through the back door. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, have a show a bit of have a bit of humility and um and play up the junction, you know? <laughs> My brain is swinging back to the conversation we we're having about music papers because although David, with very good reasons, draws attention to the level of inaccuracy that plagued those newspapers, it's also true to say that they, and we should make this case even further about how influential they were. If one of those papers chose to put such and such an album as album of the week, then that would have a big impact. And particularly when you were 15 or 16 and reading these things, you didn't know your own way around the world. A lot of these people were your guides. Mick, Mick um, still gets people coming up to him in, in pubs in Manchester saying, you wrote something horrible about my band in 1979 <laughs> you know, and threatening him. <laughs> it's a very common occurrence. But yeah, it was. It was like being handed down because it was it. That was There was no alternative. So it was like being handed down the tablets of this is the good stuff. And some, sometimes they were right, you know. But it's extraordinarily influential, so much so that if you were in Sounds of the Enemy and you were played by John Peel in 1979, you could probably f- still fill a decent-sized hall today. That's how influential it was and indeed still is. So, yeah, it, you know, despite the fact that most of it, a great deal of it was nonsense, um, it was it was our nonsense. <laughs> you know, it was it, it was nonsense that was that was for us. And um, they did an extraordinary, you know, the British music wouldn't be seen in the way that it is seen now, had it not been for those hardy souls occasionally venturing beyond the pub. And uh, occasionally actually going to the gigs and occasionally even listening to the albums. And, you know, there were people, if you ended up being the cover stars or whatever, it was very competitive because there wasn't an alternative. There wasn't a different way of getting your information across. There wasn't an internet, you know. There was a small amount of television programming, but Yes, Top of the Pops, it was Peel, it was uh, the papers. Pretty much it. That's your lot. I can imagine Rolling Stone has the opposite problem, which is, having its voice heard when there are so many other voices from bloggers to everybody else on the internet. On the Yeah. Network. I think, I mean, there's still like cachet with Rolling Stone, I would say like artists still are excited to be featured. And I think that that's also just because like we have really good writers. We have really knowledgeable people. Like you said, there's a lot of people in music journalism who are not good writers. Um, and there always has been. And now there's more because it's easier to, you know, start a blog and, um, start your own website. I'm just happy to work somewhere where they care about the quality of writing and they care about being in depth and they care about covering new artists and they care about covering, you know, legacy artists in kind of equal measure. Like you said, you know, you go to sick in your hat and then 
Hey, you they're my about... band. You can't like them, Brenda. They're my band. If you start liking them, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reject them. Yeah, I used to I... like them, but they've, they've gone off now. They yeah, I know. Better than the them. second album sucked. This person from Rolling Stone is talking about them. Yeah, um. but, but I love Rolling Stones. It's fantastic, and I, I have to say, I, I have been in Rolling Stone once. <laughs> and I nearly wet myself with excitement because I was in Rolling Stone. It's a it's a it's a wonderful thing. I think British people struggle to get it sometimes. Um, Rolling Stone is, is a it is it is a very very American thing. Mm-hmm. It feels very American, and that's great, you know. But no, I, I I've been in once, and I and I was like, I'm in Rolling Stone. Look, <laughs> I'm, I still look at my name on the masthead every single time it comes, and like Brilliant. get excited. So, <laughs> I I feel you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talking about good writers, but back in the seventies, you did know the names of the writers. We've mentioned some of them already: Tony Parsons, Charles Shaw, Murray, Stephen Wells has just come to my head. Charles Shaw, Sandy, Mo- Sandy Robertson. Whether you liked them or you didn't like them, you, you read them and you had an opinion about them. Yeah, and sometimes you would write a letter indignantly to them. Yes, and then if they published it, it was like four. Look, that, 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 that's some playground blagging rights right there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, you know, uh, Chaz Diwali or something from uh, another really was a guy called Chaz Diwali. Um, or Tony Mitchell has been rude to me in the letters pages in his reply. How about that for playground bragging rights? <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting because, like, I think I was right in the, the point, the era before the internet, like, was huge. So. I had kind of just a similar experience. You go to the library and like look for Rolling Stone because it might not be at the grocery store. Um, And that's you buy records because I I remember buying a Kaiser Chiefs record because someone in Rolling Stone uh, said they were similar to XTC and (laughs) they weren't really, but like, yeah, yeah, you you kind of (laughs) they're dreadful, (laughs) absolutely dreadful band. Yeah, I'm not gonna. (laughs) I I don't like talking poorly of people, but uh, yeah, Um, but yeah, you you couldn't listen to things. You could just sit there with your cassette tape and see if it comes on the radio, so you can tape it off the radio, and the first five seconds will not be there. But yeah, it's it's crazy the access that people have now to music and. Tell you what you should do, Mark. For I've just given I give it away all this content. Honestly, is should do one of those listening things and get like a fifteen year old kid to listen to uh, Cross Wires or Rose Girdle the Globe or Trails and Neilon and get just get them to listen to it and and like get their reaction, see see what they think because this because it, it it's uneasy listening. A lot of this it's it's not. You know, the, you know, the, it it isn't pop. Um, it is a lot of it is, you know, ang- difficult, atonal, um, uneasy listening. So it'd be quite interesting to see what a kid, you know, an actual, uh, you know, a real, you know, a genuine kid. You know, I could maybe ask one of the lads from "I'm Sick in Your Hat." I don't know. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> they, they, I don't. I don't speak to all of them because I wrote a bad review of them one well, time. Well, yeah, they'll uh, probably come. The probably they'll come looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it'd be interesting to see because it is. You know, it's, it was harsh. You know, going back to that live thing, it, it was a harsh listen. 
And, um, you know, I've actually got, you know, mixed review that he wrote of that first gig. You know, he actually sent it to me a few years ago, which I have here. And, you know, and he talks about that harsh, metallic guitar sound that is very, quite difficult to listen to. So this, you know, it was quite... It was 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 an uneasy listening, and it makes me smile. This kind of oh, you're on the coattails of punk and this, that, and the other. How pedestrian do the Sex Pistols sound with their slow chugger chugger, Chuck Berry, you know, waka 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 music compared to early XTC? It's literally twice as fast. You know, XTC were punkier than most of the the big punk bands. It's, the Pistols are a very pedestrian rock band in comparison to um, uh, those early XTC albums. So I don't buy into this, oh, the coattails of punk. They were twice as fast as punk. What are you talking about? You know, it was they were punkier than punk. Um, um, you're, you're saying this as the man who wrote the book about the Sex Pistols, so it's not... It's, no, no, you know, no, no. I've, I've be... never written a book about the Sex Pistols. What I've written... A, about being near the I've Sex Pistols. I've written a book about an audience who looked at the Sex Pistols, a very Mancunian way of looking at the Sex Pistols, and said, that's crap. I could do much better than that. And they did. And they formed the Smiths and Joy Division and Buscocks and created Factory Records and the Hacienda and the uh, and all the things that came over the next 30-odd years. So it's actually it's the, 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 the most uninteresting part of that story of, of the Pistols and Manchester is in fact the Pistols. The Pistols are the least interesting part of the story and that's what's interesting because hey we should let the facts get in the way of a good story you know. <laughs> yes but I think that thing that um, that um, Mick was alluding to about the XTC not fitting in properly uh, from his perspective when he was watching them has always been the case with them and I think that's sort of the thing that makes them gives them it gives XTC a longevity because it means that they're out of time. You can never really say there it was definitely this era or another era. And I think that's well, I know because I've I've come across a younger generation of people who are very into the, their late seventies music. Um, to them, it still speaks. They still do find something not just XTC, but but including XTC and bands of that era and that and that's very gratifying for an old man like me to know that i might not have been wrong the first time around and god bless the kids yeah because yeah. the kids are very rarely wrong and i think the difference being is that and with the greatest possible respect to the music writers of 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 that time and you know i'm going to say something rude now because i've 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 started it with the words with the greatest respect but with the greatest respect the you know the kids now god bless them haven't got them as the gatekeepers they haven't got the enemy and the sounds and this, that, and the other telling them, this is what you should like this week. I know we said that they were terrible last week, um, but now, no, we're saying that they're fantastic. Then then those those people aren't the gatekeepers anymore of the British music press, weekly music press, and that's a beautiful thing. Famously, one of the bands I've written about, um, a band I really, really, really like, the 1975, and the enemy... The, the um, once did a big piece about the 1975 saying that they were the worst band in the world. And then a year later, they did a piece about them saying that they were the greatest band in the world. That tells you everything you need to know about the enemy. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, I'm having a flashback to that. There was a period, quite a significant period, actually, where enemy would, uh, they would produce a number of cassettes, compilation cassettes, including one called C86. 
Yeah. Or was it seven? C86, which is very influential. C86, yeah, you're right. And, um, but I do remember thinking there was one they did on a series where there was suddenly they would get into jazz or there was a country country music one and 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 jazz music and you'd you'd, you'd read the paper and you think well they weren't mentioning country music last week and now they're telling me I should be it's listening like to that it. that spoof thing that Partridge did for the John Peel session. Oh, uh, tonight <laughs> we've got uh, music from uh, the Slits, the Sluts, uh, the Slats, Inevitable Groin. It's all that kind of nonsense, isn't it? You know, absolute codswallop. But sometimes, sometimes they were they were right, and sometimes they struck gold. And you, I guess, you read them for those reasons. Totally, yeah. It is. I can and I can I can remember. You know, mixed review. I can actually quote. I can read. I can say the whole thing to you now without looking at it because I memorized it because that's how important it was to me. Yeah, and can can could you imagine that that happening now, Brenna? Somebody memorizing something you've written. Um, I hope so. You can imagine it. <laughs> you can imagine it. <laughs> um. I hope I hope that you know music writing is still important to people. Yeah, yeah, I I would hope so, but I think it's more you know having people that you trust, like right. It's finding writers who have similar tastes to you. I think is important, and realizing that like I've never been a, a big fan of negative criticism because you can find a reason to like anything, like unless something is technically terrible. You know, there's someone who's going to like it. Yeah. So, I mean, when I, I used to work at the Talk House, which Michael Azarad, uh used to run, and it was just musicians writing about music and uh, like a tenant of it, like was no bad reviews because why well, discourage someone from listening to something that they could potentially like? But it's it is important to encourage people to check something out that they might not be familiar with. Yeah, I I kind of think that with this specifically with this podcast because because we're all doing it because we like the band in the first place and then well how do you like the band and what is it you like about them and that is a thing that 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 is interesting. What do you call that noise? Thanks to Brenna, David, and Mick, and also to David White for his song. And many, many thanks to the podcast supporters on Patreon who make it all possible, including the following nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Kevin Burt, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Peter Fermoy, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Alan Hughes, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusuf Murrah, Amy Parkinson, Murray Meikle, Kevin Murray, Karen Neal, Doug Perry, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slato, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, and Nigel Waller. If you'd like to support the XTC podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thank you very much for listening. Back next month with more XTC goodness. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>